This is The Guardian. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. James Lovelock was a true scientific pioneer and inventor extraordinaire. He worked with NASA and the UK Ministry of Defence came up with a device to measure the build-up of toxins in soil, water and air, dabbled in cryogenics, filed more than 40 patents, wrote more than 200 scientific papers and several books, and even, maybe, invented the first ever microwave oven. But it was his Gaia theory about how our planet and the life on it interact that made James Lovelock a household name. His incredible breadth of knowledge and unbounded creativity allowed him to make predictions about the Earth's future, issuing one of the earliest warnings that petroleum products were destabilising the climate. And Lovelock's accuracy in his predictions sometimes even seemed prophetic. In his 2008 book, The Revenge of Gaia, he wrote that by 2020, extreme weather would be the norm. Tonight, the desperate battle to contain California's historic fires is now a race against time. Remember those storms that just kept on coming almost every weekend? We had Kira, we had Dennis, we had Storm Jorge. Scientists in Siberia have confirmed the highest ever recorded temperature in the Arctic. That's 38 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Even as he passed his 100th birthday, he was still theorising about the future of AI and humanity. The artificial intelligence is dependent upon the Earth and the proper functioning of Gaia just as much as we are. And so it's got to work with us if it's going to stay alive. Last week, James passed away on his 103rd birthday, leaving a truly immense scientific legacy. So today... I'm talking to Global Environment Editor Jonathan Watts about what we can and what we should learn from the brilliance of James Lovelock. 
From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Actually, before we get started, one thing that I did want to ask you was, James Lovelock being the character that he is, were you intimidated or nervous the first time you met him? I was very nervous the first time I met him. Um, His reputation preceded him. And I've been writing about the environment for 10 years. And there is nobody in the UK who has as much authority and as much of a reputation as a a maverick and a curmudgeon and a prophet of doom. And, well, all sorts of titles have been given to James Lovelock. So I wasn't quite sure which James Lovelock I would meet. Now, I'm going to pause you there because, Jonathan Watts, I'm not just speaking to you because you're The Guardian's global environment editor, but because you did end up spending a lot of time with James Lovelock over the past few years. You were interviewing him and getting to know him to write his biography. But before we get into his incredible life and legacy, I do want to know, what was he like when you finally got to meet him? He was... a Wonderfully charming, kind, witty, sometimes contrarian, but it was a privilege, first of all, for him to sort of open up his mind and his memories to me. And secondly, we became um, good friends. I first interviewed him for The Observer in the summer of 2020 in between lockdowns, and I presumed we'd talk for about 30 minutes but he just kept going and going. It was close to three hours by the time I left. I was so mesmerised by his stories that I asked, I said, has anyone done your biography? And he said, well, yes, but not for a very long time. And I've had a lot of life since the last one. And we kind of left it at that. A few months later, I had a cardiac arrest and very nearly died. I I needed three shocks to revive me. And I was laying in my hospital bed and my wife, without telling me, had contacted Jim. And he immediately wrote and said, look, um, I'd love you to do my biography. So, you know, giving me a purpose immediately for a life 2.0, as I saw it. And he said, you know, don't worry about having a heart problem in your 50s. I had my first heart problem in my 50s and I've lived to 100. So uh, there's plenty of life in you yet. It really gives a sense of his character and a lot of life to live. Really sums him up because in the piece that you wrote about him for The Guardian, you described him as the ultimate polymath. And so I wonder what that phrase means to you in terms of the work that James did. For me, that's the essence of James is, is, or Jim, is that he was able to cross boundaries of physics and chemistry and biology. He, he saw them all as a sort of continuum. And this is why he was able to have the vision that he had, literally winning the world's top prizes for everything from geology to cryobiology and atmospheric chemistry. You know, he, he really could do the lot. And, you know, he's a real hands-on scientist. He made his own equipment on a lathe that he had in a laboratory in his barn. While working for government research labs, he developed something called the electron capture detector, which was the most sensitive device ever for measuring the buildup of toxins in the earth, in the water, in the air. And 
that device, that, that, that understanding really helped to give birth to the environment movement. It's an incredible career. The range is astounding. I mean, I know he started out with a PhD in medicine before getting into cryogenics and even working on analysing the atmosphere of Mars with NASA, as well as everything else that you've described. But what he is most famous for is the Gaia hypothesis, this totally new concept of Earth's systems. So how did that come about? I think only Jim could have done this. He had the big picture and the small picture, thanks to his collaborations in the 1960s when he worked for NASA on the Life on Mars exploration missions. He developed a really important collaboration with a woman called Diane Hitchcock. And together they conceived of the planet Earth as very different from Mars. I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but at the time people thought there might be life on Mars. Jim and Diane realised really early on, no, there almost certainly isn't life on Mars. And that made them think, well, why is there life on Earth? And they really reflected back and started to look at the Earth system. Another five, ten years later, Jim started to collaborate with an American biologist called Lynn Margulis. And Lynn Margulis gave the micro picture of how tiny creatures in the mud, in the oceans, are doing all the hard work to make sure our atmosphere is breathable. Um, it's all regulated by tiny creatures and big creatures too, but especially tiny creatures. And Jim had the capacity to pull all of these things together and come up with the Gaia theory. So I wonder if you could just spell out for me exactly what it is and what it's describing. Well, the Gaia hypothesis is a way of challenging, in a sense, one view of Darwinism, that life adapts to the environment. That's true, but what the Gaia theory says is that it's only half the picture because life also creates the environment and it's constantly creating the environment and creating the conditions for life. And so as a result, it becomes a self-regulating, interdependent series of relationships. So I think that's the core of Gaia theory. It's much discussed. There are many different versions of Gaia. Jim had different versions of Gaia at different times, and it remains hugely contentious, especially the out there, if you like, um, view of Gaia as alive, that the planet is actually alive, a living organism. Um, and Jim really felt that it was alive, that we are part of something much bigger. I think it would be fair to say that initially the public were a lot more keen on this than the scientists. Jim used to have a lot of famous battles with neo-Darwinist biologists, particularly Richard Dawkins, most famously. Uh, but over time, several of the things that he had theorised were later proven to be true, particularly with regard to the enormous influence of the biome, the living part of the Earth, on the atmosphere. As more evidence came out, that became a really established part of what we now call Earth system science, which is in many ways Gaia by another name. Um, but you're right, his theory hit a chord with the public. And of course, the name Gaia, the Greek god of nature, uh, of the Earth, um, also gave it that 
kind of special element. And that name was suggested by Jim's friend, William Golding, the Nobel-winning novelist who was his neighbour for quite some time. John Lotz has changed in the decades since Jim put forward his Gaia hypothesis. And he did see many of his predictions that came from that on the state of the planet come to pass. Speaking to him over the last few years, while we have seen devastating weather events and drastic changes to the climate and Earth systems, how did he feel about it all? Did you get a sense of that? Um, Yes, I did. His feelings changed according to his mood, which I suppose happens to all of us to a degree. On the whole, though, I would say he had a sense of great foreboding. He was absolutely clear and consistent that burning fossil fuels was wrong and was taking us all onto a perilous path. Regarding our ability to cope, he thought that most of humanity will probably survive in some form um, and that it would be like going through wartime, through hardship, but that there was a way out and it was fixable. He started to think of Gaia kind of doing the job for itself in regulating humanity back to a manageable level. He felt that the coronavirus pandemic might have been a negative feedback of the Gaia system to try to trim the human population, and there might be more of this to come. John, James Lovelock's work has had an incredible influence on green movements, but he wasn't a clear-cut environmentalist. You know, he was keen on nuclear energy, he expressed support for fracking and against onshore wind farms. He worked in and with industry, including for the fossil fuel company Shell, And in the piece that you wrote about him, you alluded to the fact that you didn't always see eye to eye on everything. Uh, My purpose wasn't to to disagree or try to persuade him. I wouldn't be so presumptuous. And so I would gently prod and try to explore why his thinking on certain issues was the way it was, why he was so enthusiastic about nuclear power and you know, how he had remained so loyal to Shell over the years, all of these things which are, you know, very troubling from a purely environmental perspective. And he also was very conservative in later life. You know, in his early years, he was a socialist and a pacifist. But at the end, he largely went in in the the opposite direction. So he would gently mock the Guardian from time to time (laughs) and Guardian values and other times praise the Guardian. He sounds like a very charming contrarian. And I can hear your affection and admiration for him. And I wonder what you'll take away from the time you got to spend together. Wow. Um, It really goes back to that willingness to combine things, to look at the very big picture and to drill down into the microscopic detail and not to flinch and trying to communicate on all those different levels at the same time. It's not easy, and yes, it's got to be accurate. Yes, it's got to be scientifically sound, but it's also got to hit people on a a, a level where they feel it's right and they feel it's important, because I think that's maybe one of the reasons why science has kind of failed to communicate sometimes. 
I'm sorry that you've lost such a great friend. It sounds like such a fascinating, complicated person. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss him enormously. But at the same time, you, you can't complain. 103 years. And I don't know anyone who's lived their life quite as fully or died quite so perfectly on your birthday at home, surrounded by your family. So, yeah, his loss is, is missed, but there's also a lot to celebrate. That was Jonathan Watts on the great James Lovelock. You can find links to the obituary, as well as the article from John I was mentioning, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And back in 2019, our sister podcast, Today in Focus, did a fascinating episode with James following the publication of his book, Novacine. So we've also put a link to that if you want to hear from the man himself. And that's it from us today. The producer was me, Madeline Finlay. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Isabel Rugol. For the next two weeks, the Science Weekly team will be taking a summer holiday. So we'll be back on Tuesday with one of our favourite episodes from 2022 so far. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.